Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Paryush Chaudhry. Paryush is the founder, president of Agahi. She's a futures researcher and strategic narrative professional. Her work mostly involves futures research, knowledge collaborations, and content intelligence within the framework of human security. She has worked with multilateral donors and aid agencies, news organizations, and multinationals in advancing development efforts in Pakistan. She's regularly invited to various international and domestic forums to speak on futures, storytelling, and human security. And now she's joining me on the deep dive. Welcome to the show. It's so great to talk to you this morning. Thanks, Philip. My morning, your kind of late afternoon going into the evening. Absolutely. So, you know, I've been going through your work over the past, I guess, week to 10 days since you sent me like a bunch of reports and a bunch of things you're working on. And this has been a conversation I've been really excited to have. And I'm going to start really with an essay that was, you know, a personal journey narrative, but I think also very instructive to how you view your work. And where I want to start there is this perception of self that seemed to be, like I said, that personal narrative, but also a conversation about futures. And it was really a conversation about Pakistan, or at least that's how I read it. And what I grabbed from that is how do we get to be where we are and really who we are? So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of walk through a little bit of that journey. Wow. That's such a heavy question to start off oh, with. It's, I, it's, start, it's, I start heavy. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it has a lot to do with the question of identity or identities and how people through their own journey sort of figure out who they are, what they want, and things sort of change in life. And so what I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, perhaps I'm not the same person. Maybe I am the same person in some contexts. Maybe I've learned some other things that I hadn't learned 20 years ago. So the journey in itself, getting to this point for anyone, I think comes a lot through experiences and how we view our own experiences. Some of the things that I've actually been looking at in the past couple of months is uh, our own perception rather than about ourselves, but also along with that, our own perception of how we view time. And in that very context, how we frame our understanding of the realities that surround us. But within the same framework, how do we connect ourselves with our own perception and our own understanding, I think is equally important. So, you know, it seems a bit wish-washy at this point, but I think this is sort of a transition that you sort of make beyond like understanding of the, the material end of things, the physical end of things, and more of a in some contexts, it would go into the spiritual realm. And so having a much more broader view, I think sort of helps you get to that place better in a much more meaningful manner. And your 
the clarity of your sense of purpose sort of improves along the way is when you have a better understanding of who you are where you're coming from and exactly what you want to achieve out of this very limited lifespan of a life which may seem long in certain moments in time but it's a lifespan and what you want to achieve out of that i think that was the most fundamental thing pakistan in the sense was only used as a reference point as to where i was coming from where i live but in more uh, more of an essence it is exactly how a human life sort of begins and the various processes it goes through you know there pain there is struggle there is happiness and all of those things but then exactly it is because of all of those things that makes you view life in a different light altogether so yeah and you know in that element of time and I'm and I'm glad you entered time in the context in which you did specifically because obviously when we're thinking about the future it denotes a certain function of time when we think about it in a linear perspective and that's something that I tend to challenge folks on and there's a section of the essay I think comes quite early on actually where you refer to the word and if I pronounce it incorrectly please correct me on it kal k a l or is it kal 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 and the yeah. concept that it's the same word for yesterday and tomorrow yeah and in the context of thinking about the future that seemed to be a fairly significant idea that this one word can capture both past and future so i want to give you a chance to kind of frame that in relation to the culture that you're creating your work in it's a very you know sometimes i sort of a lot of people at least you know the home base does not really really understand why that word sometimes in my presentation is also there when i'm in doing these various presentations on futures thinking but the fact that you picked it up really really helps me sort of ground it in the reality in the sense like i wouldn't call it may perhaps it's the limitation of the language there are other ways of expressing what future is but also it goes to show that as even as a society much of our understanding and even the you know the perception of self comes from it's heavily past oriented so it it is almost like you know the work that i've been trying to do in the country and perhaps in the region is like how do you bring a group of people who may not have as much understanding on the subject area that i'm working in but how do you get a bunch of people sit together and start thinking perhaps in the beginning it should be it is linear for them to construct the idea of what future is bring in some level of certainty and predictability in the way of thinking and then you can send in a bit of chaos and complexity in the process but just to get the conversation started i think it's very for us it was a very important the idea of actually using this word alone was very important to kick start a conversation and then trying to get even the linguist to think about like do we need perhaps a one word because there are combination of words that denotes a future time but do we need perhaps one word that would actually help us understand what tomorrow is in for instance other than having so it's also sort of helps us understand that we also live in myths and not really and so storytelling is in a very different style it's not based on yesterday on tomorrow it's just like a wide conversation that you're going to have 
So you will find in our culture also you you will find even if it's at the policy level or even if it's at a very local level you will find a lot of storytellers in the society that may or may not connect to the time frame that we like to live in and then we like to take our decisions and it's based on those cultures and tradition and norms through which people develop their thought processes. So there are frameworks which help us tackle them also and bring in some form of concreteness and ideas and applicability of their thought processes in decision making but that's sort of a journey which is a very long process in itself and we're not fully there yet but you know largely speaking we have been able to change the conversation in Pakistan and i like to believe that is you know because of all the good work that we've done yeah i mean absolutely i think the idea of having these these conversations and the length of time in which it takes to have them is really important and um that's coming as i'm looking down my notes like a little further down i want to connect that idea to to the region but before we get there i want to jump back into the com- one of the comments that you made in your response which is around this idea of plurality and there being multiple forces going on storytelling is one of those ways in which the narratives that we tell ourselves the mythologies are acting out on different levels and it it made me think about generally this idea of complexity and how we coexist with plurality in the sense that there isn't one future right like futures plural can send us in different directions and then as i was reading your essay you also brought up this notion of identity and identity also is something that is plural right we're not just one identity that in way in which we think about ourselves but we can be multiple identities so i want to give you an a opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about that shared complexity of future futures on one hand and then com- our identity in another yeah. oh okay so You know, it took me a while before I may even made that connection. Like what has identities got to do with futures thinking? And then as in a factor, like how do you look at time? And is time being constructed in a linear format where there is no deepening of time? There is just understanding of year on year developments. So all these when you connect all these dots you try and make some sense. So this is more of a sense making exercise where you try and understand okay how do people view the, themselves and they can view themselves through multiple levels. I mean they could view themselves through the lens of gender, through religion, through their spirituality, through their profession, through relationships. There are so many people who view themselves through relationships. I can be a mother, you can be a father, we can be siblings and you know so there are so many so it's all that understanding and when you have all of that understanding you can also understand like how people view the future also so although you're going to be throwing in a lot of those things which are happening which could be if you take the current pandemic for instance there are different views some people would like to be vaccinated some people won't like to be vaccinated some people believe that this pandemic is man made some people believe that this is all natural consequences of a human made so you know all these factors sort of come together based on the context from which people are coming in 
And so the contextual framing of uh, your own comprehension as a foresight practitioner is quite important in the sense that do you have that level of empathy to be able to build that understanding as to where the other person is coming from? And then also try and figure out as the duration of the time frame through which that thought process is, is uh, sort of emerging from. So it's a very human-centered, by the way. I mean, it's a very human-centered process. I mean, you can throw in a bit of like a policy or a regulation or a digital technological development or a discovery or an idea from all across. But it's a very, you just thinking is a very human-centered process through which you have to understand that there are complexities which would be environmental in nature, but also there are complexities which are very human in nature. So these are the things that human beings bring to the table. Unfortunately, what really limits our understanding sometimes is the, I wouldn't call it the false structures. You know, there's structures which are man-made that don't give you the flexibility to think in different levels. So those are the structures that you take to, uh, you tend to consider, but not really use them to hold, hold you back from your own thinking. I mean, th those structures could be anything. It could be an organization. It could be a bunch of rules. It could be a construct that you live in the U.S. I live in Pakistan. We live in a structured environment. Our policies are structured around those national interests, security interests. So we need to understand those structures and then building on those structures sort of also understand that there is a human element to thought processes also. So how do you figure those things out? I think identities play a very fundamental role in terms of uh, building on that capacity. And, you know, the idea and the notion that we, you know, we are living within structures. You know, what I like to think of, you know, there's formal ways in which we navigate the world that it's ordered. And then there's informal ways. And, and culture, you know, flows in between those, those realities. And, you know, if, if I think, for example, it's what I call here, and it's not just in the United States. I think it is somewhat a little bit more Western, but this sort of Wall Streetification of how we think about our lives, right? Everything is a quarter by quarter basis based on numbers being reported. And we kind of look at the economy going up and down based on these, you know, artificial constructs like GDP and other, other such nonsense. But Nonetheless, so a little bit of opinion on what I think about those kind of numbers and reports. But yet, when I'm looking at the work that you're doing and how you're thinking about it, it is deeply multi-generational work. When you're looking at Pakistan and the region in 2067, when you're asking, you know, 22nd century questions, you're clearly not thinking on a quarter by quarter basis. So... I want to get to the core of where that sort of, you know, critical long-term thinking, how that plays into the type of work that you're doing. But then also from an institutional perspective, you know, you're someone getting support to do this work. You know, how is, how is that received against the very near-term limitations in terms of how people are thinking, right? You're looking at the 22nd century and folks are dealing with tomorrow, right? Not really tomorrow, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and so I want to get a sense for how that works. I, you know, frankly speaking, if I were to just base it on my lifespan, it doesn't work. 
But if I were to see through the lens of someone who is a generation younger or even another generation, two generations younger than I am, and then I see it work. So it also sort of boils down to which generation am I looking at in terms of building my own understanding and opinion on the matter. So if I'm going to be looking at a generation which is, let's just say, you know, 60, 70 year olds who have really, I wouldn't say hijacked the decision making process or the decision making position. But if they're making those calls and their shots, these are essential. This is the essential generation that I'm dealing with. Right. But if you were to ask a much, I think, a much broader question. I wouldn't say it is wise or not wise, but I consider it, there is some wisdom in consulting with a five-year-old. They're not limited by the structures that we have found ourselves uh, growing up in. They have still yet to have that full-on exposure and that experience paradigm. So working with someone who is perhaps a 13-year-old or a five-year-old or an eight-year-old is a very different way of thinking. And perhaps the question which has to do with the 22nd century makes a much more creative sense for that generation than as opposed to a generation who's already been there, seen that, and you know. So you pick up any newspaper and you know, or a magazine, you know exactly what answers you're going to get. But you're speaking to someone who you are slightly unaware as to how would the dots connect for this uh, 10-year-old, you know. So it really, and when you mention, you know, it's intergenerational and everything, and it's very intergenerational when you're doing futures thinking, who are you actually questioning? So if I were to say, like, uh, what is the significance of this work in terms of determining the near-term future? We did that. We produced that sort of work, which is very linear. You have a bunch of, you have the GDPs in it and, you know, whatever makes sense to so you have those questions in and they may make absolute sense. So that is something which is perhaps a near term view. But if uh, if you need to have an intergenerational view, you need to have a very fundamentally different way of thinking. And that goes beyond like, you know, in some cases we hear and in some cases in uh, at least I see in some of the families, there are legacies, but there are family legacies, you know. Very few cases that I've seen around myself, which is a civilizational legacy. So what is the civilizational legacy in the context of where I'm coming from? We don't have many examples of that. I mean, we could perhaps find them in our neighborhood. I mean, China is a civilization force. India, in some manner, is a civilization force. Iran is another civilization force. And you have Turkey, for example, and some places in our so there are examples then that there are civilizational legacies within these uh, geographical areas. But because we're so young in the same manner, the max we can turn out is a family legacy, which is a very narrow way of looking at. And much of the decisions happen because of those legacies and questions also. So it's not really like, I think in the context of US, we would have like a corporate legacy, Right. How many corporations live through different generations also? So uh, so there are different ways of actually looking at which generation would this work for. Foresight in terms of legacy making, you'd see that in family structures, but in a very different way. It's not really all that professionally motivated. It's very personally motivated. So you have that whole concept within just the family, not as much in the corporate culture in Pakistan. And, you know, it's really interesting 
I wasn't expecting the civilization legacy to be a kind of, I didn't expect to hear that word, right? So this is this is why we have a conversation. So it, bring, it brings up things you didn't expect, but then connected in the way that you made that, that kind of linkage, that there's a comparative to a longer term civilization legacy. And when you look at the region, you highlighted other countries versus like a, a more, um, a younger, perhaps more local family type of legacy. And it, it made me think about a portion of your essay when you talked about combining this African and um, Asian perspective and being among, I never say someone's the first because I don't really know. So I'm gonna say among the first, the leaders in creating organizations to bring kind of two worlds somewhat geographically close to one another, but bring them together in, in what I perceived as I read that sort of a best practices, what can we learn from one another? Do you see a connection to that civilization legacy that you highlighted in trying to do that? So we see that in terms of like human history and how the migration, human migration happened. And so you will see some traces of even African cultures. It's a sort of a hue that you don't, it's not very obvious. So how do you really, how do you build on that in terms of connecting cultures more closely together? And, you know, you could be coming from a very different culture and the languages could be very different. But if there is a certain hue or even a shade of which the two of us can find a commonality in, I think that really connects the whole uh, purpose of our existence, I would say. But that's just wishful thinking and a very idealistic. But in the same manner that you need to be looking for those, what are the common features in, in different cultures? You know, how do all these different cultures really connect all of our um, civilizations? And you would find, you would find there are so many similarities you would find within the African homes and you would find those similarities within Asian homes. So we were very family oriented and you'd find the same thing in African homes. I mean, not that, not to say, and this is some few things that, you know, as you move around in different countries, you try and sort of look through the lens of how people view their own relationships. And so siblings become important, parents become important, cousins are important. And, in, and this is a sort of a structure that moves beyond like friends and colleagues and all those other uh, sphere of uh, relationships that people have nurtured and created. And it's a very different way of aligning how do these two cultures meet. So that's one way of actually looking at it through the prism. History helps us sort of connect those, but also uh, how do we expand on those things is equally important. So I'll give you one example. So China and Pakistan are very close in terms of their strategic relationship. And a few days ago, I think it was just two, three days ago, I was on this uh, conference call where, you know, they wanted a view on uh, someone's book who's uh, written on China and Pakistan relations. And uh, my point was like, although the, because the decision making is happening at the top, we don't really understand the familiarity that people tend to create in their relationship. We don't understand that because we don't share a language. And because we don't share a language, we cannot comprehend the other better. And so how is it that we as Pakistanis, as a different generation, feel much more closer to the Americans or the Europeans? And yet someone as close to us in the neighborhood, we don't have that affinity. And then we understand that language has a lot to do with that. And then, but at the same time, 
my point was like, how do you open up, like media being one of the landscape, how do you really open up to really get within our own perceptual understanding, get those visuals and images and that culture into our imagination at the same time? So media, therefore, plays a very important tool. And with all this technology thing, it just makes things much more easier. So that's where I'm coming from. And when I created Platform on Africa and Asia, the intention was to actually just do that. Like, and not just from the prism of being Pakistani, but how do you connect all of those things? You know, how do you broaden the understanding, increase the exposure and deepen the experience level of different communities? Because without that, I think we're not going to have that empathy. We're not going to have that compassion as a, we may have it as a society, like at a different level, but when it would come to opening up of different trade routes altogether, we're not going to have that comprehension. And that will just not go, that would really be anti-human behavior, like in terms of that will, that creates room for conflicts. And you want to be looking at things where you're really trying to minimize conflicts in near term, even in future. So these were the platforms were, which were really driven from the intention and motivation as to, you know, how do you really resolve the forthcoming issues i mean these are issues that have not come so but you see them on the horizon and you sort of say okay and you know that that horizon idea you know i'm gonna jump further down because you anchored in in your very last statement when you talked about avoiding conflict that's just some notes here but i knew in my mind there's gonna be a question so i'm gonna fit that question into that point because i think that it brings up like a very interesting thing that I kind of notice through the essay. And again, these are just my observations. So I'm not saying that this was intentional, but as I read it and, and I read it more than once, there was this back and forth or like sort of a weaving. I, I saw it like that of these sort of really like metaphysical ideas while that are very rooted in understanding the navigating of the policy norms of the country and the region. And the reason why I'm thinking about it that way is because there was a point toward the end where you you had this, maybe it was near the middle of the end, if that's such a place, where you talked about, we need to enter a state or endeavor to end pessimism. Right. So I I wrote like a question mark there, like ending pessimism, question mark. Right. And then you talked about also avoiding conflict and encouraging harmony. Right. So these are all words, pessimism, avoiding conflict, encourage harmony. Right. That don't normally live in institutional structural places. Right. Like I don't imagine that in the Department of Defense here in the United States, they're having a very deep conversation about encouraging harmony, right? It seems to be that they are in clear opposition to that idea because it will put them out of a job, right? So (laughs) I'm being a little facetious, but what I'm trying to pull out there is getting these ideas or confronting these ideas, they are really deeply human questions. And it sounded to me that the culture between people and the understanding that empathy that you talked about seems to be critical in order to accomplish that. So I wanted to get your sense of how you kind of incorporated those ideas. And am I 
interpreting it in the way in which you intended or am I totally off base? <laughs> no, I admire your interpretation. And at a place where I was actually putting all of these things together at the same time, at a point when you're writing all these things, you're like, okay, for a reader, you're not really thinking about the reader. You're just writing it from a place where you feel happy about the thoughts that. And uh, in terms of like when, when you said, I'll tell you why, best, it struck me. One of my mentors actually made this point. We were having the same, like it was a deep conversation. And then, you know, at a point that I must have been, I must have come across as pessimistic in my view and my thinking. And uh, he was able to point that out. And he said, he told me at that point, and he said, pessimism is a cowardly position. And I kind of like, I was like, wow, I mean, if I'm pessimistic, that I'm putting limitations to my own thinking, right? So it just shows that, okay, this is it. I mean, there is no other way out. And, you know, there are no options, there are no alternatives. And so it means that I've really not, I've really not really come to understand what true human potential is. And therefore, I'm escaping that struggle, if you get what I'm saying. So that's where I really held on to that. I really held on to it really made an impact. I've not really recovered fully from pessimism. And not that I'm saying that even he may have re recovered fully from pessimism. But that was a very important point in my life. It made an impact. As we move further, you mentioned like around harmony and, you know, conflict and you know, why do you want to do all of those things? And if you're talking about Department of Defense in your country or Ministry of Defense in my country, but again, we're living in structures. We're living in structures that really protect other structures or give legitimacy to other structures. And beyond that, honestly speaking, what is out there? I mean, and then you've created for that structure to be viable, you've given a notion of, okay, this is the lifestyle that our community, our nation truly deserves. So you have the human life and what you believe needs to be. And then you have the structures in terms of complementing that in order to justify their existence. So it's like, I'm really simplifying. This is, I understand it's not as simple, but this is the way it makes sense to me. I mean, why do these structures? What I meant, and you're absolutely, what I meant about conflict and harmony these are two human conditions. And if you look at those human conditions, you would see like, are you better off with your sibling where there is no conflict? Or are you better off with your sibling where there is this level of uh, openness and friendship and all these other things? So when, you, when I say better off, what I mean to say, are you sad or are you happy? Are you depressed? Or are you really joyous in your life? And I don't see anyone who's in a... I've not really come across anyone who is in a conflict is happy. I mean, you really need to, uh, you know, if you know someone, I really like to really understand like if conflict makes them happy. But also, you know, I've met people where they're getting along and when they're... Cel so you'll see celebrations the faces of people when they're celebrating, the faces of people when they're at a loss, when they're mourning. So loss has an emotion and celebration has an emotion at the same time. And it's a very human way of looking at it. Like, uh, why do you need harmony? Because it makes me happy. Generally, if people are getting along, you'll have better collaboration. You'd have more incentives to cooperate. And, and you'll ultimately, one way or the other, either you'll produce something really, pardon my language, either you'll produce something which is very shitty or you'd come up with something which is truly phenomenal. And those are the two results of actual cooperation. And you don't cooperate like unless you want people to have a conflict, there is a level of cooperation happening there. 
you want people to get along there's a level of cooperation here but it is very important for also these structures to understand where do we see our societies move in which direction do we see us do we only see our societies move for the next 5 years or 3 years or 4 years depending on your election term or depending on the kind of jobs you want to secure to what end and so you want to make world a better place and all these other things but where do you really start i mean at what point do you really start so these are all those um, they're not even higher ideals i mean i would assume that you've acquired language you've uh, made discoveries you've been mentored things and so you know i mean what have you not really discovered in the process in you know it's it's interesting because i go back and forth with the idea of pessimism optimism what do those things mean particularly as it pertains to imagination i'm surprised we made it this far into the conversation without imagination coming up so i don't know if that's a, a testament to the depth to which we had to go through the other questions or just poor planning on on my part because imagination is actually one of the first things i wrote down so <laughs> so i'm surprised it took us that long to get here but i'm going to stay with the pessimism optimism thing for a minute because again and this is a western at least a very american perception that to some extent when i'm in conversations with folks it usually ends with this like call for optimism even when having had a difficult conversation so you can be talking about something and it could be anything right that's maybe you know kind of a a reality based like we're trying to work through some stuff and then after you've kind of talked about whatever it is which likely has maybe some sort of personal trauma attached to it or something they'll kind of turn to you and they'll say well after having said all that are you optimistic about the future <laughs> right and it, it feels like in that sense like optimism is i don't know i'm not finding the right word because i'm just it's just coming to me right now but i i always feel like when people are asking me that question they're hoping that i would absolve them of the near term hard work of dealing with this issue right so if we can end on this note of optimism you know like oh yeah they stormed the capital and almost overthrew democracy but are you optimistic about the next 4 years right and i'm like what like we haven't really dealt with the reason why these people did the thing right and that's just an example right it could be anything at all right but i just try to anchor an example that at this point is both tragic and also easily comical in this particular moment to make a point right and so i'm i'm trying to wrestle with that so i'm curious maybe as a reformed pessimist <laughs> if you understand where i'm coming from maybe i'm a reformed pessimist as well i consider myself to be just a realist but nonetheless curious okay sometimes i like to sometimes i have actually viewed my way of thinking viewed my own way of thinking as uh, as it's moving towards uh, greater optimism to the point of it being delusional to the point of it being really hyper imaginative and when you view yourself like that you're like when you come back into your present reality and you're like what was i thinking and not that any of that is wrong but the struggle is very real if i need to get to that place so optimism only works if you understand the struggle that it actually needs 
for you to be able to see it through. So when you talk about like our way of looking at optimism is again, it's a construct, it's a structure. So our way of looking at optimism is also determined through these things. And, and they're so real, they've made it tangible. So it feels like you can touch, you can feel, you can see all of those things. But if you really deep down, you really dig, like who has monopoly over happiness? Who has that? And you see that really no one really has that. And then you find optimism because you can find if you go into a playground, you see a bunch of kids playing together, you see there is happiness there. So there is this level of, you'd see if you go into a science lab, you see a bunch of students collaborating with one another and building a rocket or, you know, experimenting on new mixtures of chemicals or whatever that is. You see optimism so people can cooperate also and then they can create stuff. And then you grow up a little further and then you see people making beautiful paintings and all these. So there is optimism. And then, you know, you see amazing musicians, you see talent out there. So it's the way how you want to inculcate that feeling within yourself. So it is, well, the first thing is to switch off the news because that's not where you're going to get it from. You know, you're not going to get it from like, oh, stocks going up, stocks going down. These are the sh- Really, it's leading you towards the next step of your anxiety process. You know, it's just leading you to the next quarter, the kind of decision you want to make. And so you, you're making, you're living your life quarter by quarter rather than really understanding what your life is entirely about. And so how do you evolve from that position? So I think going through a really like different experiences, highs and lows in my life, I realized I've been happy in both phases. It really wasn't the crash in different phases in life that made me. And so a lot of the time people talk about hope. I really don't want to stick to that because eventually when you are going through, there is a sense of loss. Try and explaining someone hope in that context, right? You should allow, so at that particular time, you should allow people to grieve because that's very human. You should allow people to celebrate. That's very human. So I honestly don't think that, well, I think as a way of education, there is no room for pessimism. That's a way of education. Unfortunately, that has not been the case over the last two centuries. Or See what we're being taught in schools. We've been taught wars, conflicts. and all. Not that any of that is wrong, but at the same time, what are the values that we're sort of inculcating? What kind of human beings do you need 50 years down the road? Or do you still want to live in that pyramid structure where there there is conflict and then, you know, quest for peace and all of those higher ideals. And you even asked that question, like among those big 22nd century questions, one of the first, I believe the first one is how do we learn, right? It's a very sort of introductory way into asking, you know, how do we set people up to think about how all of this works and our place in it? And I want to combine that with a, a quote in um, a longer formed piece that you shared with me about, I'm abbreviating, but it's about a new think and this idea of thinking in a different way. And you mentioned um, Jim Dater and and that the future should, should look ridiculous, right? Like our notions of the future should be ridiculous. So I want to combine those two ideas of thinking through how we learn while also in Jim's point that our goal of the future and how we're thinking about it, that it should seem ridiculous to our present selves. So how do we create the learning environment that will get us to 
thinking about the future in a, a ridiculous way. So if you were to think about like, if you were to consider you're not a single planet species, if you were to start off from that and you say like, you know, your interplanetary species and, you know, there are generations to come who will not only live on Earth, who will live up on whether Elon Musk takes us there or some other guy takes us there, whosoever is doing the technical work on it. But if you start to understand that you have the potential of not just being here, but in different parts of the galaxies, right? And you you try and sort of understand how would that look like, you know, rather than human species confined to notions of countries, states, and territories, you know, what will human species look like in terms of different planets? And so that really, really sort of, your, your technology is trying to take you in that direction, there is some level of thinking going on in that direction. But for us to actually continue with this civilizational force, human civilization force, you've got to be thinking beyond what you have currently. And you've got to come out of that thinking of this is mine and this is that is yours. You've got to come to terms with thinking of this is ours. So it's a very different frame of uh, learning about uh, life in general. We've not really learned about life. I mean, I'm going to give my, I've learned nothing about life throughout my education system. So the education system, if you can build upon what is so important to learn about ourselves within the education system, rather than what is important for the corporate sector, then you fundamentally change the way we learn about uh, things. And, and that's you know, one frame. That's just one frame. I think it's a great frame and it's a useful frame. And it allows me to have one of my favorite topics, which is to just kind of dump on Elon Musk. But um, and, the, and the reason why I'm going to do that is I love the example. And maybe it's also because I'm in like season four of The Expanse. So I'm totally oh, okay. into like this idea that human beings are living in at least other parts of our solar system. Right. And maybe beyond, because like I said, I'm just starting season four and it looks like it's expanding. Hence the name of the show. But um, in the way the example was presented, you know, when I was a kid, space to me felt collective, you know, and, and I'm dating myself in this kind of 70s, 80s, growing up, seeing the space shuttle go up for the first time, like, you know, it was a big deal, right? And now I look at something like space and our relationship to it, and it feels very siloed and individual, right? Like what was NASA, this sort of big government, but yet it felt kind of not the government. So good branding on NASA's part. <laughs> and, you know, to to take this incredible behemoth funded by the government and make me kind of have warm and touchy emotions about it, like it was Starfleet Academy or something. And now if I think about someone like Elon Musk, I don't get that feeling at all, right? I feel like this is something now private, something created through the hubris and arrogance of one person. Whereas in the way I'm thinking about it, it, it sh this should be something collective, right? Like it should be all of us truly as a species working together, right? But when we open up the paper, we see lunatics like him and this country did this, this country did that, this country, did, you know what I mean? Like it still feels very like tribal in that sense. So how do we take that? And, you know, this is a metaphor, right? Like it doesn't have to be about space, right? Like so we're not getting far off into the weeds about space travel. But I think to your point, it's a perfect metaphor because if we are a species that is truly connected, endeavors like this, COVID, 
they should be universal, but yet they still feel tribal. Yeah, Not really a question, just a statement, but no, I want to hear your I, 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 You know, you really summarized the whole, the purpose of uh, giving this interplanetary was for us to be able to really visualize. It's, it's very useful to be able to visualize something, but that doesn't really mean that's how it should be. It means that how should we think, right? It's okay if we aspire to do that, but at the same time, we understand the grievances and the, and the sadness that we're living with currently as much as we can reduce that sort of suffering in our world that we're in. So that gives us an idea of what cooperation and collaboration could potentially look like, but at the same time, not to forget what that sort of relationship would actually do in terms of our life here on Earth. So that's part one. We will have people who will be tribal that has fundamentally, in my understanding, in my view, and this is a personal opinion, that is more to do with your own idea of who you are. And it comes from that stems from the notion of your own identity. So when you talk about uh, people like Elon Musk and even others, maybe you view them in terms of the context that they have uh, seen their own selves. In. I would say there is maybe the crisis of imagination is one part, but also the crisis of imagination is perhaps for within ourselves. We are unable to imagine ourselves beyond the gender, beyond the ethnicity, beyond the culture, beyond the tradition that we're born in. And therefore, we are trapped in our own past experiences and are not able to imagine those possibilities. And so when you talk about someone who is stuck in their own ego framework, and then you see them bouncing across within that framework, you kind of see that like, you know, a little tiny ball sort of hitting different walls and still trapped in that one box. It's just the framework that they were born with and they were unable to create a different framework. So in our line of work, what we call that, what is that metaphor that would lead you to the next phase? So what you see is not only the identity, but the lacking of a metaphor that would help them evolve to that next phase. And so therefore it's easier for a very short term, like, you know, this country did that, this businessman did this. So it's a very narrow view on even space. If that's what you want, like even space, that's a very narrow view. And you're absolutely right when you say that it's a collective thing, just like the planet we're on. It's a collective thing, but we've divided it so that we have our own way of understanding different things and make whatever we find more meaningful and give sense and uh, meaning to things that we need to sort of exist with. Human life is tricky. And, that, and that's saying something. And interaction is even much more trickier. So, yeah, it's it's a lot on this blue marble that we all share together. Before I get to the the final two segments of the show, because we've covered a lot, but nowhere near what was in the notes and in the reports, which I I knew was impossible. I always get myself into this trap every time I record, where I have all this stuff, and I know we're not going to get there. But you know, I'm really excited about the way you've thought about, you know, Pakistan as a nation, as a its place within the region and this desire to have, you know, what you're calling like a new think about the future of Pakistan. And it's, and it's very focused also on young people that are there. And um, I think it's a, you could refer to it as like a young bulge or, or I might have the language. 
Youth Bulge. Youth Bulge. Okay. I, I, I knew I, I had it somewhat right. And you said something in that frame that talked about what younger people really want in order to look forward. And you mentioned honesty as one of those traits. And so I wanted to, again, it really was a, a beautiful turn of phrase because it took, again, these really, I think, very important ideas and put them into the context of, you know, strategy and also institution and, and started to weave them into that. So I, before we get to the final two segments of the show, I wanted to give you an opportunity to just talk a little bit more about that notion of how this new think, this youth bulge, and people wanting honesty as a foundational way in which they think about their future, like how that all comes together. I think a lot of this, the context from which it actually emerged is through the lens of corruption within the country. And that really overrides the general perception of young people when they're trying to assist politicians and even assist them in terms of their policy development or whatever they're doing. So that's one part. When it comes to honesty, it's the sort of exposure that they're, you know, it's one of those higher places that they actually would want to feed. So a society that is based on lies, that is based on deception, isn't a society that really is going to go far. It fragments very quickly. So for the young people to aspire truthfulness or to aspire for honesty is the sort of understanding as to what kind of a society that they vision themselves in being in. You know, forget about exploring their entire potential. So that's something we, which we lack tremendously as a country. But in terms of reaching that higher place, there has to be some level of institutional understanding of how important this is. Now, if there isn't any understanding of how important it is, you will have a government, you will have institutions that are really stuck on the near time. What kind of people or a society wouldn't want to be exposed to what's happening in the rest of the world in terms of how it's happening, right? And so you do have governments, you do have state institutions that generally that really are dishonest in their way of framing someone's perception. And when they find... Uh, some level of truth elsewhere, which and they gravitate towards that narrative. And then you see, sort of see that the state has somehow really banished its own existence within that space. You know, it's the way that you can see the trust diminishing. So when you see different surveys, when you see different polls, and you see how the trust in the government is diminishing over time. So in the sense that I would really not trust the government or a corporate entity, I would rather trust that one single person that I have a relationship with. And it sort of goes, it's those two people or three people that have a relationship that take things forward. It's really not the institution in itself. Yeah, I mean, it's talking about fragmented lack of trust. <laughs> those are those are things I'm well acquainted with. Um so that is, a, I think, a, a great summation. And, you know, like I said, we're going into the final two segments of the show, Off the Dome and The Drop. But, you know, I really enjoyed, like, not just the conversation, just kind of a preamble to our final farewell as it pertains to this show. But I really enjoyed getting a chance to, you know, read your work, a nerd. I print everything out. Like I have like one of your reports literally right here. And, oh, wow. <laughs> and, um, wow. 
and I and I read everything, and it was really exciting to me to do that because, you know, from my own perspective, you know, sitting in Brooklyn, sitting in the United States, like my knowledge of a lived experience there is not very broad, right? So it comes through the media and culture that I've been shared over, you know, 40 odd years of my life, but, you know, more recent history, right? So even when you wrote and talked about this post 9-11 generation, right? Like that's such a interesting break in time, not just because it's an event that happened here, but, and I was an eyewitness to, but I just found that really interesting because I could see where, you know, we're still living in some respect in that moment, in the way in how we relate to one another and think about each other. And I wanted to really get past that. So I was really excited to read through your work, to see how someone thought about it, who's part of it from the other part of the world, right? Like we're literally on a different parts of our little blue marble. So your work is very important. And I wanted to say that in a context, not just at the farewell. Um, and so now we're going to get to off the dome before we get to the drop. And it's just our opportunity to have a little fun, drop, you know, we started off in a deep end of the pool. Um, and so now we're going to kind of go out and kind of wade out of that water and just answer some quick fire questions. And I had three, but I'm actually gonna have one more since all this interplanetary talk inspired a question that randomly, right? <laughs> and so, but I'll save that one for last. If you were um, working on your autobiography, what would be the title? So I think if I were to ever do an autobiography would be, my name would be the title for it. and. The only reason is the meaning of it. It means nature. And uh, the more closer I realize, like while growing up, the closer that I am to nature, the happier the person I am. And I'm a better human. The more you take me away from nature and then you bring me into concrete and uh, uh, steel and aluminum and all these other uh, things, it just sort of affects, has an effect. And I don't think that I'm a better human uh, within those confines. So New York is definitely not the place for you. <laughs> we, we do have many parks. It's, it's, New York is actually quite green, despite the fact being filled with concrete and steel and all those things. But we have tons of trees in Brooklyn, right? The tree grows in Brooklyn, as they like to say. Um, I would so say the same for Karachi, actually. There are some trees somewhere with few yeah. parks. <laughs> Yeah, we got we have a lot of trees actually, um, which I'm over. I'm, it's but it's not a green place, like you know. Let's keep it in somewhat of a context. I totally understand what you mean there. The second question is, what is one of the most out of character things? So thinking about your nature, um, what is one of the most out of character things you have done recently? Recently, I mean, there, when you have lived out of character in terms of uh, understanding your own self, you really can't pinpoint at the exact thing. I mean, it's rather difficult because everyone else views you like you're completely out of character in anything, right? So um, I, what, what have I done? I find everything so normal. So I can't really... Uh, I, mean, I, wish, I wish I could, but I think within truly who I am, I did everything accordingly. Okay. <laughs> Fair. Fair enough. It's really different. Um, 
This is an either or question that's um, kind of silly, but it does kind of give me a context into how people think. Going forward, you know, so thinking about like meeting people and kind of like the things in your life, would you prefer to always be slightly late or very early? Okay, I've been very early to places. It's really not a good feeling. And I've been slightly late to places, equally not a good feeling. <laughs> but but I think I would prefer being early. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought about that one myself. And I don't know no, where I land. Really? You know, because in New York, in normal New York, not in the New York of now, where we're kind of all still living in our houses and doing everything in our homes. But in normal New York, I call it a New York 15. If you <laughs> if you if you're going to meet somebody at one o'clock, anytime, whatever the time is, you're going to meet somebody in New York. You got to give them 15 minutes because one thing can happen, and you're going to be literally in this situation. Like if everything works perfectly and you plan, you're going to be like 30 minutes early mm-hmm. because you got you got the train. It didn't have any delays, and so you're one o'clock. You got there 12:30. Because everything worked out. But if one thing goes wrong, like you go down to the station and you miss the train, you're going to be 15 minutes late. <laughs> like that 30 seconds is 30 minutes or 15 minutes on either side of what you're doing. So I feel like I live in that state mm-hmm. all the time, no matter what. So that's why it was kind of So you know you have how you me. actually mentioned, like I, I just picked up on this, like how you mentioned that leave is for someone else and uh, in hopes that that would be something for you. Someone else would consider the same for you. Like yeah. I, minutes. I have just, I just, you know, think like, okay, as long as you're prepared, even to give yeah. up those 15 minutes, that's fine. Yeah. I just, I think if you're holding people in, and it's probably not just New York, I think if any major city where transportation yes, is tough, if you're holding people to the like letter of the law, <laughs> you're you're going to be in for a lot of disappointment <laughs> and and a lot of just unrealistic expectations. So I'm a person who just feels like just go with grace, right? Like extend the same grace to others as you would expect for yourself. <laughs> I agree. Right. So, you know, if someone's taking it too far, then of course call <laughs> them on it. But I'm like 15 minutes either way, who cares? Right. It's like, it's New York. <laughs> What's the difference? Read a book or something. Um, <laughs> And the final off the dome, which kind of was inspired by our kind of back and forth about our interplanetary possibilities, as we think about the imagination of that. If you had to choose a planet in our solar system to kind of go to or visit or populate, which one would it be? It would be the moon. Okay. Yeah, that is one. I mean, I, I see the beauty of it. Like, you know, that is something that you can truly observe with a naked eye. You don't need a telescope or any of those things, but it's the closest also. So it, will the feeling be the same when I land on it? It's something that I want to explore for myself. Okay, cool. Yeah. Inspired by our conversation, but I was curious all the same. And again, the expanse is just rolling through my head. So I'm thinking about all these different, all these different things. So that's great. And so let's get to the drop. It's the final part of the show. And again, these are... The drop can be anything sure. that we want to share with our listeners. I have a drop, you have a drop, or drops. They can also be plural because I had a guest the other day that gave like four or five things. So there's no restriction within reason because I got to make the show notes for this. So let's not get crazy. But nonetheless, I have mine. I'm hoping you have your 
who do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? You want to go first? No, you go first. I like to listen to yours. Okay. Um, my drop is actually a, a TV show that I binged on Sunday, and it's called um, Zero. And it's a Netflix show, or at least here in the United States, it's on Netflix. Um, it's an Italian production, and it's all about this group of kids in Italy. The cast is prim primarily people of color, you know, um, of African descent, or whether they were born in Italy or not. I think probably some Brazilians in there, and which for Italy is a, is a great departure, right? To for a country that is dealing so much poorly with migration and new people coming in, despite their history. Um, what I've noticed kind of putting on the cultural anthropology hat is that they're producing quite a bit of programming that is far more diverse and multicultural, which I find interesting because there's two different forces going on within the same country, one a cultural and one a institutional. Mm -hmm. um, and the show is actually quite interesting, right? It's, it's I'm not going to give it all away, but it has like some supernatural elements to it, some gentrification elements to it. Like it does a lot. 20 minute episodes is not the deepest thing in the world, like it's not The Sopranos or anything like that, but for who made it and what it deals with, I thought it was quite interesting. So it's called Zero and it's on Netflix here in the United States, but it might be on other streaming options depending on where listeners are tuning in. And that's my drop. Perfect. So I think a couple of months ago, I picked up this uh, book called Evolution in Four Dimensions. And uh, it's a, I find it's a, it's a good book in terms of helping us understand and connect biology to our psychology. And so I found that like how human, different human variations really affect our emotions and the, the behavior as an outcome and what role do genetics play in the process. So it really boils down to also where you're coming from, where you were born and the kind of family history you were born into. So, um, you know, it also got me thinking about, you know, my entire family history, which I never did. So I think these are some, it's an amazing book in terms of understanding human life just in general. If you were to understand history of life in that context, it gives us a good view on things and a very scientific view in that case. Sometimes I think in terms of uh, things to make sense, I also need to introduce logic into my way of thinking. And that just helps me sort of say a bit saying at the same time so yeah so that is one book that i would really recommend people who are with me who are into reading scientific stuff awesome i jotted it down so i wouldn't have to go back through the notes and it sounds like the kind of thing that i would read so i'm going to add to the stacks and stacks of books that i have <laughs> laying around here you know because every every time i talk to guests they recommend different things or they refer to things in the show and then i'm like oh i gotta get that book you know and then i end up like just again, piling and piling and piling the books up, which is great, you know. Much love to all the book lovers out there, wherever you reside. This has been a great conversation. I, I'm encouraged by the fact that I was able to start my day with a conversation like this. I'm, I'm hoping it will continue to give me energy through the course of dealing with all the things I have to deal with on my calendar that aren't conversations like this. Um, Pariusha, it was a pleasure having you on the show, and I'm, I'm really glad you're able to join me on the deep dive. I really enjoyed myself, Philip. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. 
we'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.